A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, smart pills, brain hacks and adventures in intelligence with science writer David Adam and his new book, The Genius Within. Dr. David Adam is the Sunday Times best-selling author of The Man Who Couldn't Stop, which was winner of the 2015 Medical Journalist Association's Tony Thistleweight Award and a finalist for the Royal Society Winton Prize for Science Books. David is an editor at Nature, the world's leading scientific journal, and was previously a specialist correspondent on The Guardian for seven years. Writing on science, medicine and the environment, he was named Feature Writer of the Year by the Association of British Science Writers, and has reported from Antarctica, the Arctic, China, and the depths of the Amazon jungle. And David's latest book, which we're going to be talking about today, is The Genius Within, Smart Pills, Brain Hacks, and Adventures in Intelligence. David, welcome back. Hello, hi. What's the idea behind The Genius Within? So I wrote a book about my experiences with OCD uh, a few years ago, and when it was published, I was contacted by some psychiatrists who wanted to know if I would... Uh, help them as part of a research group to try and improve treatments. They wanted my input as a patient representative, so someone who could speak on behalf of you know people with OCD or other issues. Um, it's quite difficult to improve treatments for mental illness because um, there's no new drugs really in the pipeline. And one of the things they were uh, they're going to experiment with, and, and we hope to do this um, still is to pass very small currents of electricity into the brain. And the thinking there is that you might be able to almost prepare the brain or soften up the brain for the kind of therapy that you get given for OCD or other mental issues. It's called cognitive behavioural therapy. And the improvements in people tend to come in fits and starts, and some people can be very slow, some people can get it and then lose it. And so I suppose the the theory or the, the hope is that maybe there are, there are some people who don't get as much benefit from what we know does work with some people, and the reason for that might be that their brains just are less, uh, or their brains are more resistant to it, and, and maybe electrical brain stimulation, because the brain obviously works on electricity, could lower the threshold at which those people can get help. So this is being developed as a medical treatment, um, but of course there's a long history of medical treatments which are being designed to treat people being taken by the um, the mainstream community and being used to enhance themselves, so drugs and sport, the obvious example. And it turns out the same thing's going on with electrical brain stimulation. So people uh, who don't have OCD or indeed any other mental issue are building and buying brain stimulators and are, are using them to try and improve different forms of, of intelligence, of cognition, of to make them sharper, more alert, more focused. 
And it turns out they're doing other things as well. And, and so one of them is taking smart pills. And again, that's the most common is a medicine which is developed for things like narcolepsy, sleep disorders, to make people more alert. And there, a lot of students take that. And I just thought that sounded really interesting. And 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 the more that you, the more that you look into this topic, it's sort of like an onion. The more the more layers you uncover, because the questions become: Well, what are you increasing? If you're increasing, are you increasing your intelligence? What is intelligence anyway? And I thought it just sounded quite an interesting topic for a book. So I looked into it. And you try some <clears throat> of those methods on yourself through the course of the book, which we'll come to. To begin with, and again for reasons that will become apparent, towards the beginning of this book, you join Mensa, the organisation for intelligent people. Tell me, remind us who Mensa are and, and what sort of person joins Mensa? Yeah, so well, Mensa is uh, it's an international organisation and it is for people who, uh, the way Mensa describe it, are on the 98th percentile of IQ. So IQ is uh, is a, not everyone <laughs> believes this, but it's a fairly well established test of, of what we think of as intelligence, or at least one way of measuring what we think of as intelligence. And uh, Mensa is, is a, basically a private club for people who score highly on IQ tests and specifically higher than 49 other people in the population. So if you're in the top one out of 50, statistically, then Mensa will let you in. Now, I didn't I kind of joined by accident, really, because I thought if I'm going to investigate cognitive enhancement, then I need to know what my, well, I need to know is something being enhanced. And um, as we've discussed, it's quite difficult to pin down what intelligence is. But IQ does at least seem to have some robust evidence and it seems to be fairly reliable and so on. And then I thought, well, what's the best way to get my IQ measured? And, you know, that you can you can do a free test online in five minutes, but they're a waste of time. Um, proper IQ tests that psychologists use take more like an interview. They take four hours. They're really expensive. And in fact, they're very difficult for outsiders to even get hold of the questions because they deliberately keep them secret. So when they're used, for example, in courts and things like that. So Mensa seemed to be a reasonable compromise in that I was going to be able to go and sit the test, get my IQ, and then my plan was to then do some cognitive enhancement and then go and sit it again and obviously get a higher IQ and hopefully cheat my way into Mensa. Except I, yeah, I kind of blew that by getting in the first time. <laughs> Although I didn't really get in fully because it, it turns out Mensa, the Mensa test is actually two tests. And I did, I did well enough on, on one of them to get in, but not well enough on the second one. And you only have to pass one of them to get in. And so I thought, well, that's what I'll do, my cognitive enhancement, then I'll try and improve my score on the second test. Let's just talk about the idea of intelligence then and what we mean by it, because it's actually, surprisingly, it's a relatively modern idea, isn't it? I think certainly measuring it is, yeah. Um, I think, you know, we've always... Well, just the idea that we care about it. Yeah, well, we never used to care, really. And, in fact, I think it's because of... Uh, compulsory education for young children, which is more recent perhaps than most people think. It's only really around the turn of the 20th century that most countries started to send sort of five-year-olds to school. And only then did specifically people in France realise that there were there was a great difference. And it sounds obvious now, but until they had got 30 random five-year-olds in, in the same place, it just wasn't obvious to them that people learn at different speeds and, and, and some students were really struggling. And in fact, the what we now know as the IQ test was developed as a way of trying to find the kids at the bottom end of the scale 
to be able to give them extra help. But certainly, yeah, until until really around the time of the First World War, there was no interest in widespread intelligence testing, and and therefore most people didn't know or care. And there's there's a couple of key people in the beginnings of this. So let's give us some idea of who they are. Charles Spearman and Alfred Binet. So Spearman, he was the first person to basically confirm with maths what most people who've been to school will know, and that is the same people tend to do well on most tests. So whether it's English or maths or even music languages you know generally speaking although we like to think that or some people say they're a maths person or an english person or a language actually if you look at school age anyway it just doesn't seem to be true that the data don't support that if if you're good at maths you're also more likely to come towards near the top in english and languages and everything else and spearman was the first person to show that and he then um, suggested that when we think and when we reason we draw on some kind of common um, ability. I mean, we individually draw on what we... So that means that... uh, And he called it the G factor, or or G for general intelligence. So it's kind of a bit like, I guess, the size of your brain power, you know, and and you you can apply that to different areas. Now, that although it sounds reasonable, it's actually hugely controversial because not only does that mean that the people at the top tend to cluster, but so do the people at, at the bottom. You know, if, if you do poorly on maths, you're more likely to do poorly on other things that require mental ability. And that's a really that's really difficult for many people to accept, um, especially many people in education, because they like to believe that every child has the right to be good at their own thing. And of course, there are other <laughs> elements. That's only going to be one of the elements ever, isn't it? Because of course, like economic situation and things are also going to have an impact. Oh, I mean, certainly, we're not even talking about where that comes from. It's just the fact that you know someone's G factor does seem to, uh, if you have a higher G factor, you seem able to do better on academic tests than than if you don't. But in, I mean, no, no way is that making any claims about you know where it comes from which we can come on to if you want but it's just it's a statistical observation and then Alfred Binet so he was the guy in France who was the first person to work out a way to assess the relative abilities of kids because what they were looking for was the kids who were going to struggle in school and he worked out the way to do it was to compare it was to devise a series of tests which could then, depending on the kid's age, could be compared to what you would expect someone of that age to roughly do. And and so if a six-year-old was scoring around the average scores of an eight-year-old, then that six-year-old was said to have a mental age of eight, which is where the concept of mental age came from. And, and in fact, certainly when I went to school in the 70s, people were still talking about the idea of mental age. And, and that's why some people... When you ask them what their IQ is, they just come back with an astronomical number because mental age was used to sort of work out IQ, but only in children because it's just a it's a way of assessing development. So a five-year-old with a mental age of 10 would have an IQ of 200 because it was just simply one divided by the other. But that isn't the way that IQ is generally measured in adults. And of course, that then tends to become used in other ways because... Anybody that's familiar with um, previous Little Atoms where we've talked about Francis Galton, hearing that he pops up in this story as well, will know that uh, people started to use the idea of testing intelligence not for like benevolent reasons, but you know what they really wanted to do was prove things like you know some racism or intelligence and others. Yeah, exactly. And it's you know it started off with very noble purposes to trying to find 
kids and give them help. And very quickly, it became a cover for much, much darker, dreadful aspects. Um, because in a way, the intelligence of one person is irrelevant unless you can compare it to somebody else. It's a bit like if someone says, oh, I got nine out of 10 on a test. Well, you need to know what everyone else did. Because if everyone else got 10, actually, you haven't done very well. If everyone else got four, you're a genius. So, And once you start measuring and comparing people, then inevitably some people will want to rank them. And what happened with Galton and, and other eugenicists was that IQ was kind of handed to them on a, on, a, on a plate at around the time when they were looking for ways to vindicate their prejudice. And and through various some mistakes, really, and, and some, sometimes deliberate deception, there became ideas about how different types of people could be stratified by IQ. And it became a stereotype that was affixed to certain types of people of ethnic background or, or usually even sort of in Britain class, you know, the lower classes were said to have lower IQs and things. And what that meant was that IQ was sort of used as what seemed to be a scientific way of treating people with extreme prejudice and really badly. I also want to talk about roughly sort of contemporary with, with this is <clears> this idea that you could measure people's intelligence by the size of their brain. So tell me about this in the Mutual Autopsy Society. Yeah, the Mutual Autopsy yeah. Society. So that was in France as well. Um, and well, this was, this was you know, back in the late 19th century when they didn't have IQ. They didn't know about um, how to measure the output of the brain as a way of trying to assess individuals. So they just measured the size of the brain. And of course, to do that, generally, you have to be dead. And in fact, they, earlier than that, they would people would, would collect skulls and, and try and infer the size of the brain that was in that skull by filling it with lead shot and sand and, and weighing to try and assess the volume. And again, those measurements were used to justify ideas about different races and prejudice. And then it became clear that actually measuring the brain itself was, was a bit more accurate because then you could associate the because often a lot of the skull measurements were just they were scavenged from the battlefield so they had no idea who these people were in life but if you could um, if you could identify the brightest people and then measure their brains afterwards these people reasoned you could then prove that the reason these people were superior was because their brain was bigger so that became a very popular way for a while and there were these clubs there were these you know again people who viewed themselves as better than others would say we're all really clever and so we need to prove that to people so when I die I'm going to give you permission to take my brain out and weigh it and show everyone and they did you know they they each died they all took each other's brains out they measured them and they published league tables to try and prove that again that they were really trying to prove that they themselves as a class of people had some kind of inherent superiority but of course it's just I mean that there is a link between brain size and and IQ but it's pretty pretty small and it's almost very it's almost impossible to measure by just scooping the brain out of the um the skull in in 1896 and sticking it on a pair of scales which is what they did hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f*** are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Adam. We're talking about his book, The Genius Within, Smart Pills, Brain Hacks and Adventures in Intelligence. And David, I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about, I guess, ways that we can get insights into how our brain works by looking at people with atypical brains. So you talk about a number of savants in the book. Tell us about some of these people. So I became very interested in that because I think most people are familiar with the idea of the autistic savant, so Rain Man. Now it's actually not true that there's actually not a stronger link with autism and, and these incredible savant abilities as some people might might think, but, but certainly some people with autism have savant abilities. And they tend to be what we thought anyway was that they were born in that way. We now know that there are some people called acquired savants who don't have any kind of ability and then something happens to their brain. Usually they have an accident they, they or they get some kind of disease which affects part of their brain. And then they develop a skill. Uh, art is, is a very good example. And now and other people develop um, increases in memory and, and um, reasoning and, and things like this. And um, the only way you can... Because they used to think originally that, that savants were somehow born... Uh, sorry, their brains were somehow different. And and if you have a brain which operates like everyone else's and then changes to be able to do this, they haven't learnt this skill. Obviously, something has just spontaneously happened in their brain. Well, what is that? Nobody knows for sure, but a pretty popular explanation is that because a certain part of the brain is damaged, um, then the brain reroutes that function through a different part of the brain, which isn't necessarily the first place that you would choose to do that task and it does it in a different way and and sometimes that different way can appear to be extraordinarily more detailed or or just better and then the question is well if that happens under freak accidental conditions is there a way of recreating it in a safe way Uh, because one of the i suppose one of the theories for these savants is that they have access to sort of a deeper level of subconscious processing or mental ability and and in theory we all have that potential. It's just that we wouldn't usually use our brains in that way. But are there ways of trying to mimic it or to try and um, at least borrow the idea? There's a story of a man in the book who I think does have autism, who has some sort of electrical stimulation of his brain and then suddenly starts 
to develop an emotional response. Tell us something about what Yeah, so his name's John, and, and he, he's written a book about it, actually. People can find it. His name's John Robertson. So, yeah, so he, he has autism, or he, he, he is autistic, and he's written books about it. And he was actually taking part in a uh, scientific experiment into how people with autism process language, I think it was. And it was so it was magnetic brain stimulation, but... But what that does is it induces electric currents in the brain. So it's still electricity, really. And yes, completely to his surprise and to the surprise of all the scientists, uh, he uh, found he was able to register emotion. And um, he was sure it was connected to this brain stimulation that he'd had. And um, it, it's a bit of a mystery, but the best explanation that the scientists could offer him was the same, really, was that somehow the brain stimulation had almost unlocked a part of his brain that was there all along. It just wasn't online because the only other explanation is that it was just a, a random rearrangement of his brain which just happened to produce emotion which just happened to be the one thing that he was lacking or he somehow learnt it really quickly which just doesn't seem possible either. So, so the only really remaining explanation was that he had that capacity, it just wasn't twitched on. I raise that just to to really bring us to your own experiences with cognitive enhancement. So there's a couple of methods that you try, the electrical brain stimulation and the the drug modafinil. Well, tell us what either of those things do. Yeah, so I suppose what I wanted to do is I thought if I'm going to write about this and how easy it is to do and people are doing it, then I should at least show how easy it is to do. And so, so modafinil, so that's what people call a smart drug or a study drug. It's what a lot of students take. It's what a lot of um, fighter pilots are given because it's a medicine. It was developed to, or it is used to treat narcolepsy. So it has a similar effect to amphetamine because it's actually being used, being developed to try and phase out amphetamines in some medicines and use this instead as a safer version, fewer side effects. And yeah, it kind of makes you, well, so I took it, um, took it twice. I took it once just to see what it was like um, and I took it again when I did the Mensa test it's a prescription medicine which means in the UK uh, it's illegal to supply it without a, to someone without a prescription so I had to go and bought it online which is what most of the students do who, who take it on the black market I actually got mine checked out it actually was modafinil whereas most people who buy it they're just taking a chance really and in fact it was it was quite interesting it was it was much quicker and much cheaper to buy it than it was to get it tested to make sure it was real but yeah so I took that and you know not that I would want to encourage people to do this but it was brilliant um it just uh it made me feel like I could focus I, I think I described it as I became very aware of what I much more aware of what I was doing but probably a bit less aware of what other people are doing and there's been you know there's been lots of scientific experiments and studies with modafinil and not everyone agrees but there's a decent proportion of proper scientists who will say yes it does have a a small effect on cognitive ability you know whether it has an impact on iq or not is a bit different because that isn't generally what people measure when they, they do university sorry when they do scientific tests when I mean, they did give it to in one study they gave it to some chess players some really good chess players and they found that these chess players they all made or they, on average they made better moves but they lost more games because they took too long and i think that's quite a good way of thinking about it it sort of sucks you into the problem and, and makes you less able to move on almost and, and less aware of whatever, whatever else is going on. But of course, a smart drug, uh, although it's 
called SMART is actually pretty dumb because you swallow it, it goes into your blood, and then it just saturates the brain. Every part of the brain is, is in principle, affected. So there isn't a way to use it to target a particular skill, if you like, which is where the electrical brain stimulation comes in because, in theory at least, you can send the current more into one part of the brain than the other. And from brain scanning and mapping, we know that certain parts of the brain are more closely associated with certain mental skills or or mental functions. So in theory, if you wanted to try and change the way the memory worked you could focus on one part of the, you could electrically stimulate one one part of the brain so how did that how did you experience that so i i just again went online i bought an electrical brain stimulator which was a very budget version it was just some batteries and a couple of wires uh, a crocodile clip on each end got some sponge made some salt solution and then you kind of left to it really i i you, you know the theory is that you put one Uh, on one part of the brain that in theory you want to try and make easier to activate and then you can put the other one on a part of brain that you might want to make harder to activate so we're mimicking that idea that in some of these acquired savants you can get a part of the brain that's turned down and a part of the brain that's that's turned up and so yeah I so again I I tried it so originally I thought I was going to wear it when I did my second Mensa test, but it turned out it wasn't possible for all sorts of reasons. So there are some experiments where people have used this again to kind of prepare the brain to get the brain more used to working in a certain way. So that's what I did. I, I tried it. I, I did it for half an hour each night for a week before I went and did my second Mensa test. And it's very, I mean, it's very low current. Um, you're talking about one or two milliamps, you know, which is barely enough to light the standby bulb on your TV. But you can feel it. And you can mainly feel it because, although it's called electrical brain stimulation, most of the current just goes through the scalp and through the skull and and back out again because that's the easiest way for it to go. And in response, the scalp sort of gets a bit hot and a bit itchy. I don't think I could tell you that I could have any different sensation in my you know cognition um, because of it. You know, there are some people who say not enough current gets into the brain to do anything anyway. Certainly, I wasn't you know I wasn't doing it in a scientific way. I was just guessing which parts of the brain I was trying to stimulate. But I definitely, you know, well, the first time I turned it on, I did get this, um, it's called a phosphine, which is a um, just a sort of flash of light across my vision. Um, so I, it was definitely doing something. But again, wouldn't want to recommend it because some people have burnt themselves quite badly with it. I suppose the inevitable question is the ethics of this. So if we're talking about a student taking a smart drug to gain an advantage before an exam, whether that's to study before or to actually sit an exam, I mean, that seems like a blatant case of cheating. But then again, I guess, so is being rich and having a private tutor. So is getting your exam scheduled in the afternoon rather than the morning, perhaps even having a a decent diet or something. There are lots of things that obviously garner advantage to a person, aren't there? It's, it's exactly right. And I think, you know, as I say to people, if, if what you're trying to do is boost your intelligence, the, the last thing you would probably do is reach for a smart pill. You know, it's at the end of a very long queue of things, including diet, education, sleep, you know, practice, work, all those things. But I think that all of that is true, but it doesn't stop people reaching for a shortcut. And that's what I was interested in exploring because this isn't this isn't theoretical. You know, students are taking this stuff. There is a university in the States that says if you're caught doing it, you'll get kicked out, just as if you'd cheated on your exams. The most recent Winter Olympics, the US ski jump team did use electrical brain stimulation in their training. Now, we don't know if it works, but we do know that people are doing it. 
And so I think it's important to to discuss it because, as you say, if it does work, it raises or even if it only works a tiny bit, because it only needs to be a tiny bit. If, if all you're trying to do is outperform the person next to you, which ultimately is what because intelligence is relative. That's what you that's all you need to do to do better is to do well enough to outscore somebody who previously you couldn't. So I guess the point is that at the moment we just don't know. You know, if you're a student and you're doing an exam, you don't know what the next person has done. You know, so modafinil is is a banned stimulant in things like bridge, you know, and and chess and indeed sport because it's believed to have a bring an advantage. Well, I was going to say, well, how is the brain stimulation really any different to doping in sport? Well, in the fact that it's allowed and we don't know if it works. But it's a bit like, you know, so to doping in sport never used to be illegal. It used to be something that just people would try anything, you know. So very famously, the cyclists would just drink and take cocaine and amphetamine and all sorts. And it was only after people started to die that um, that they introduced bans. And, and so it just we just haven't got to the point yet where... Well, also, electrical brain stimulation, how on earth do you test for it? Cyclists are already experimenting with this, I'm sure of it. Because, I mean, look at the lengths that they're willing to go to. There was some, someone was even caught with a, a motor hidden inside the, you know, the, the gear. So if it offers any kind of benefit, I'm sure people are trying it. We don't know is the honest answer whether it, whether it works or not. Because if it doesn't work, a lot of the ethical questions sort of collapse. Because if it doesn't have a benefit, people are just wasting their time. Then it might have a placebo effect, but then so would magic crystals or you know whatever or superstition well indeed or it might have an adverse effect yeah but what we do know is that is that anything that does provide an advantage will get used i mean precedent suggests that and it could be as you say it could be the reverse it could be that because there's all these scientists doing experiments with electrical brain stimulation and smart drugs and so on that people are then and i know this is true with mental illness people are being led to try it for themselves Maybe they're doing damage to themselves, and some scientists have said that. I just don't think we know, and I think the only way we know is by doing more experiments and more tests and talking about it. So that's why that was the reason that, that I did some self-experiments, really. was I, I mean, I don't claim to be showing that it works, but I think there are plenty of people out there who are doing self-experiments and not writing books about it, and we just don't know about it. And what do you think about the future? You do mention in the book about, you know, even... <clears throat> ways to tamper with dna and things for future generations you know you mentioned the film limitless which is this you know idea where a guy just but exponentially his intelligence grows and grows and grows and of course you know the future is going to get more automated jobs are going to be more scarce no doubt this is going to be a thing that you'll be able to pay for and again only people that can afford to have these enhancements we'll be able to do it are we going to eventually see a world where there are you know super intelligent people I'm sure we are going to see super intelligent people, but whether that's done because of deliberate intervention and enhancement, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, we already have super intelligent people. It's just, are we going to see more of them, I suppose? I don't know. I think, uh, I think all we can say really is that uh, whatever techniques are out there, people are going to use them. I mean, you know, in the 50s in Japan, students were using methamphetamine because they thought it was a benefit. Now we have students taking to modafinil. You know, I think um, when it comes to the genetics and so on, I think I think the demand is there. I think that's the key that, because people have always tried to seek advantages and to improve themselves, if you like, or to get the best out of things. And they're going to be, let's say, if, if, if a smart pill does work, 
there's going to be huge pressure on teenagers from maybe parents to take it. If you're in the office and your boss knows that all of your competitors are all taking this stuff so they can work 12-hour days, you're going to be under pressure to do it as well. And so it's not all positive, some of these changes. But I think that, you know, so we already see there are some basic scientific studies suggesting that if you sit in an oxygen chamber, you do better on certain mental skills. You know, already parents in China are booking their teenagers into these things. Already you can go online and book yourself into one, you know, because they have them at various universities and clinics um, and they are selling time on them. Okay, I think that's a, a good point for us to finish. If you want to find out whether or not David's experiments worked and helped him on his uh, second mentor test, you'll have to buy the book. I've been talking to David Adam about his book, The Genius Within, Smart Pills, Brain Hacks and Adventures in Intelligence, which is out now from Picador. David, thank you very much for coming in and telling me about it. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.